Welcome to Disciple Dojo. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting and just talking for a couple of hours with Dr. Paul Evans. Now, I got to meet Paul this past year at SBL. We were at a luncheon together at Zondervan, and then the last evening of the conference, I went to a dinner that the seminary that he works for, McMaster Divinity up in Canada, put on and had great Brazilian steakhouse meal. And it was really cool connecting with him, and particularly because he is the author of the volume on first and second Samuel in the story of God Bible commentary. This is a great series. If you remember our episode with Jay Sklar, who's done the volume on numbers in this, you know, I'm a big fan of this series. I, it's not too technical, but it's also has in-depth biblical scholarship, but accessible to anyone, which is very much in the spirit of what we do here at Disciple Dojo. So I asked Paul, hey, do you want to come on and talk about Samuel? Because I've got some questions and I know readers have some questions and you've literally written the book on it. So let's chat. And he was gracious and said, yeah, let's do it. So we set it up and we just we had such a fun discussion. The books of First and Second Samuel, as well as the other historical books in the Old Testament, they can be challenging for a lot of people. And there are things in them that are disturbing. There are things in them that are just weird. There are some things that sort of challenge maybe how we've grown up viewing these books. So that's what we talked about. And I'm excited for you guys to hear the discussion. Before we jump into it, if you would do me a favor, go ahead and click that subscribe button and click the notifications icon. Those are two really easy, completely free ways to help continue to grow this ministry and to help us be able to do more things like this, like having world-class biblical scholars in and talking to them about their work. That's what Disciple Dojo is about. We want to help equip, engage, empower God's people going deeper in their understanding of scripture and how it shapes and forms their lives. So it was just great to sit and nerd out for a while on some Hebrew Bible stuff with a world-class Old Testament scholar. So I hope you guys enjoy this discussion with Dr. Paul Evans. So we are here with Dr. Paul Evans, and I'm excited to have him here on the dojo because I finally was able to get my hands on his commentary on First and Second Samuel. And this is in the Story of God Bible Commentary. So dojo viewers, if you remember just recently, we interviewed our friend Jay Sklar, who had done the volume on numbers in this same series. This is a great series. Our favorite scholar here at the dojo, Christopher Wright, has done the volume on Exodus in this series. And our other good friend, Nijay Gupta, I think has done Galatians in this series. So this is a great commentary series. And I was excited to have Paul in the dojo. We met at SBL, this uh, past SBL. We, we had a lunch together at the Zondervan luncheon and sitting at a table full of scholars and then me. That was a treat. Um, but... I'm excited to have you in because I was all set to teach First Samuel. We did a weekly Bible study at Disciple Dojo. It's all here on the channel. And we started in Genesis. And every week we would do 30-minute teaching through the Old Testament. And we did it for six and a half years. We were about to start First Samuel. And then COVID shut the restaurant down that we were meeting oh, at. And so, yeah, that's when we pivoted and kind of moved everything to YouTube. But I had, in preparation, had translated First Samuel, rough translation, and was working my way through it, but had never taught through the book. Lo and behold, I sit down at the table at SBL with this gentleman who has written 
a commentary on first and second Samuel. I said, come on the dojo and let's talk. So Paul is great to have you here. Um, hey, thanks for having me, man. It's you now you're up in tell the folks where you are. So I, I live in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. So it's a, uh, Cold and snowy right now, but yeah, I've been here uh, at McMaster Divinity College. I teach at McMaster Divinity College for mm -hmm. since 2009, so been, been here quite a while. Yeah, and uh, you were yeah. just telling me what classes you're teaching this semester. Tell um, let viewers know what you're up to. Well, uh, this semester I'm teaching a class on Genesis. Another class on I've called uh, Old Testament apologetics, which looks at difficult questions in the Old Testament, difficult texts of the Old Testament, and also teaching uh, a doctoral course on the history of ancient Israel, a seminar course. So lots of fun. That's yeah. right up my alley. I've, I've usually studied kind of uh, written about historical books. So mostly mm -hmm. kind of a couple of books on Kings, Chronicles, I'm writing a commentary on and Samuel, which we're yeah. going to talk about. Today. So that's been, has that, we would say that's your kind of sweet spot in study uh, do you sort of hover there and kind of branch out every now and then into other sections yeah i mean i i teach uh broader stuff like i'll, I'll teach uh, wisdom and other mm -hmm. other texts but as far as my my written material that's published it's almost all exclusively on historical books so that's well I that's love my it. jam I love it. And, and I'm glad to have you in because I have most of my teaching over the years, lay level teaching has been through uh, Torah and uh, some of the historical books, but more of like Joshua and Judges, not as much into the monarchy period. And so that's an area where like if I had to rank my Bible familiarity, I always tell people I, I struggle the most with like Ezra Nehemiah, that era. And then right after that would be uh, Samuel King's Chronicle. Just it's it's right, right, for yeah. most readers of the Bible, it's hard to wrap our minds around the historical books because there are Kings Chronicles, Samuel, uh, the prophets duck in and out. It, just the chronology doesn't lend itself very easily to a simple big picture understanding at times. And I know a lot of viewers struggle with that. And yeah, so, it's almost um, the the Hebrew order in the canon is almost better that way. If you mm -hmm. where it goes with the uh, historical books, then right into the prophets, and you can you've kind of learned the context of what those prophets are writing about, and then Chronicles is put at the end, mm -hmm. and you get this idea that it's kind of a a retelling more. But in in the English Bible, when you have Kings and then Chronicles side by side, it's like, oh, didn't we just do that? Right. <laughs> it know, gets so repetitive. In some ways, I like the I like the Hebrew ordering, the Tanakh ordering better. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you you talk about and I want to ask you some questions that have to do with your commentary a little bit and then more some broader questions about Samuel. We we have a series here at the dojo called uh, Black Belt Bible Reading Tips, and I haven't done anything past, uh, I think, Judges, maybe Joshua. I have to go. It's, they come out intermittently, but always I put on my jujitsu gi and it's like, all right, I'm a black belt. I'm going to give you some black belt Bible reading tips. Here's some things to know when you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And I have not yet done one of those for Samuel. And I kind of am using this as an excuse to cheat a little bit and get some tips from an actual historical books level black belt reader, uh, teacher, scholar out there. So this is as much for me as it is for the viewers. Uh, but one of the things in your commentary, and I, I'll, I have it here in front of me uh, on page 20, the intro, introduction 26, 27, 28, in that section, you talk about the historicity 
and and that's a question that comes up the historicity of the historical books and particularly Samuel. So you say uh, that it's what we have in Samuel is uh, let me find the exact quote because I don't want to misquote you while you're right in front of me. I probably uh, wouldn't even know. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> when I talk to the authors that have written stuff, it's like they've written this years ago. So I have to like remind them and they're my memory on what I think. Yeah. What did I say? What did I? Oh, oh, that was really good. Yeah. (laughs) But you said uh, it's on page 25. You said historiography has been helpfully compared with, quote, representational art that although constrained by historical facts is an artistic representation of events similar to how a painting represents reality. It's important to recognize that historical narratives of the Bible are not the exact events and words from the past. While there is a correspondence to reality, historical narratives are not to be equated with it. So what do you mean exactly by like unpack that? Because that might, let's say a viewer is reading that and they're getting a little nervous. Like, wait a minute. What do you mean? It's not to be equated. Like God's Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it, you know? Yeah. What are you what are you trying to say there and what are you not saying there in that thought? Sure, yeah, there's a lot um a lot we can say about it. So, um the way I think about the historical books is uh they're in a genre of writing, mm-hmm. uh which is ancient historiography. So, uh genre is, you know, a type of text, I'm sure you've talked about it here before. Um that has a characteristic way of talking. So, we could say poetry, right? A poetic text says, "God is my rock." doesn't mean he's a sedimentary object. We get that the genre leads us to understand what it's getting at, right? But that's totally fine to say, even if it's not historically true, you might say, because to say God's just a rock. Right. Um, and so similarly, historiography in the ancient world is a genre where uh, you tell the story um, not in an objective way that only focuses on facts and doesn't try and prove a lesson like modern history. Modern history writing, some of them don't even think there's any point to history, right? There's there's definitely not a moral to necessarily be drawn from it, but they're trying to understand causation and events that have happened. And they try and be objective, even though most people would say there's no such thing as pure objectivity amongst anybody. But in the ancient world, they weren't even trying for objectivity in that way. They The whole point to telling the story, the whole point to remembering was to say why why it matters. What can we learn from this? And the biblical historians are trying to tell us what can we know about God and and how he's dealt with his people in the past. And so it's it's not objective, it's subjective, it's told slant in that way. Mm-hmm. But the comparison with um, representational art, this comes from V. Phillips Long's great book, The Art of Biblical History, which I would totally recommend if anyone wants to delve into these issues more than I do in that little introduction. But he, he compares it to like a painting. So sometimes I get my students to look at a like a Robert Bateman painting, if you know who Robert Bateman is. He draws all these animals. They look very realistic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just did it actually this week in a class. And uh, I said, well, is this a photo or is this a, a painting? And one of the students said, well, it looks like a photo. And then I just zoom in. And the closer you get, the more you start to realize there's brush strokes there or it's not a photo, it's a painting, right? Mm-hmm. But it it represents pretty closely what an animal, that animal, it was a, like a bear, looked like. Um, and looks like, excuse me. So similarly, the the analogy with uh, ancient history writing as art is it it represents. There's a representational uh, value to it that it's, it's giving us a picture of what David was like. You could say, or what Samuel was like. 
and it represents them fairly and accurately. But the closer you get, the closer you get, you start to see the brush strokes, which are like, you know, um, artistic ways of writing. Um, and uh, you you read uh, what the reader's thoughts are, what their uh, some things they say to themselves. How could an historian ever find that out? Mm-hmm. Now, Christians may say, well, the, the Holy Spirit led them to do it. So they know the exact transcript of everything that was said. But I think seeing as it's written in the ancient genre of historiography, it's probably closer to like Thucydides talks about his writing, uh, his method. He talks a little bit. He's an ancient Greek historian. And he talks about that in certain events when he gives, say, the, the content of a speech of a king or someone, he'll say, I put into their mouths what they probably said basically it's not a quote but you could you could check it out it's a pretty famous discussion he has so basically what he thought was said at the time judging by all his research he put into the mouth what the king likely said but he didn't have a transcript of what the king said but that's totally part of the genre just like god is my rock is fine in poetry in ancient historiography putting into the mouths of the characters what most likely was said um, is totally appropriate it doesn't mean it's deceptive. It doesn't mean it's not, it's anti-historical or fiction. But some people have talked about those as kind of fictionalizing elements, you could say. I don't like to use the word fiction because in modern parlance, we just think fiction means false, you know, right, and right. history is true. Um, but they're fictional in the way that they 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 tell the story more like a novel sometimes than like a modern historian would tell the story. And it actually makes for a way better read <laughs> for one thing, sure. but like the, the narrative art in Samuel is, is fantastic. And the way that it draws its characters and complexity and uh, uh, it, the way it tells its story is a great read because it's not just complete objective history writing and it uses narrative art to communicate what happened. And so that's what I'm getting at there in that, just equating it with um, history, like it's a, this is exactly the event. Uh, we should really separate between history, the events that happened, the writing about history, maybe say historiography instead, right? Like they're not the exact same thing. I mean, we can never give a full account of history. Even just writing history of the, the hour or two we're going to spend talking here would be exhaustive because every time I, I rub my shin, you have to record that if it's a full history, you know, like every little detail, no one wants that. Yeah. They want the gist of it. They want, uh, you know, it depends what the point of the history is, but they're definitely not interested in what was the temperature in, in Paul's house and what was the temperature in a studio and right. or all these crazy things you could record that are part of what actually happened. So it, it's narrow. It depends on what the point to the history is. And so similarly, the Bible is interested in history. I really think, um, the, the historiography we find in, in the Bible, like Kings, it records a lot of mundane details as well. Like when you get to the Kings, it often records um, who the mother of the king is. Mm-hmm. We usually don't learn anything else about that woman, but we she her, she's recorded. You know, the lengths of reigns are recorded, certain things, building projects recorded. Some of it has to do with, I think, um, talking about whether it's a successful monarch or not, but other things seem kind of mundane because I think there's an antiquarian interest in the author and that they are recording history, but they're most interested in um, what God did in history. And they're most interested in, for example, you might have um, a battle or say the, at that time, the narrator, I can't remember the, the, the data, I mean, the reference to the top of my head, it says that God started uh, taking away some of the territory of Israel. 
Well, that's because the Arameans attacked. If you went back and wanted to do a history about the Arameans, and you'd want to know what are the reasons they attacked. There's probably political reasons, economic reasons. But the Bible just says at that time, God was trimming away parts of Israel. So it has a real theological view, but it actually doesn't tell us stuff that a lot of historians want to know, but there surely was reasons there, right? Mm -hmm. So in that way, it's it's told slant. It's told with a view to what the point to the history is that that author was trying to communicate. And so it's it the, theology overrides kind of other historical concerns that modern historians have. And some people, some more skeptical modern historians look at the Bible and say, it's not history because it's not telling me the stuff that I'm interested in. Right. And I think that's the main uh, difference. And so I think it's helpful to remember it's historiography. Mm -hmm. It's told with a purpose. It's not trying to be exhaustive. It's not interested in all the same things we are today. But I think like, like that picture of the bear I showed my students is very realistic. It's a realistic portrait that we can trust that the historian knew its subject and is giving us a fair representation. Uh, so that's kind of what I was meeting with that. Yeah, Maybe that was, I don't know, what do you think? That's exactly the right, uh, that's what I wanted you to do is unpack because you bring up a lot of really good points there that sometimes get glossed over when people are reading the Bible, whether they're skeptics or whether they're diehard believers, sometimes we automatically assume or try to defend or attack a version that says, well, what happened in this story literally down to the word is what it would have looked like if you were there with a video camera instead of what yeah. you're suggesting, which is an event happened and the telling of that event is true in what it's trying to communicate, but it's not exhaustive and it's not interested in you know, the temperature of the room. Uh, it's not interested in the type of fabric that somebody's dress was made of. It's not you know, like valid questions of history, but not sure, what the yeah. text is trying to do. I, one way, and you tell me what you think of this analogy. Um, have you seen Hamilton, the musical Hamilton? Uh, no, I haven't so, seen it. Uh, readers that are viewers that have seen Hamilton, they may understand, but it basically Lynn Manuel Miranda kind of came up with this story. He was fascinated by the biography uh, about Alexander Hamilton that he read. I think it was Robert Cherno's biography. It was just a biography about Hamilton. And he read it, and it's a thick biography, and he was fascinated. So what he then did was adapted that using modern American elements of like hip-hop culture and different genres of music and sort of retold the story of Hamilton capturing the the essence but very loose with with you know i mean hamilton and his buddies weren't doing like hip-hop numbers in the pub during the mm -hmm. american revolution right but that's the vehicle that communicates that they were meeting together and you know planning and and you know kind of trying to imagine what this new country would be if it ever got off the ground so you have this like laying out of a spectrum where if you have like, okay, here's what really happened, like the actual events of Hamilton and George Washington and America's founding fathers, these events. Then you have a scholarly biography, like a, a historical textual account of those events. You would have that and it'd be like multiple volumes. Then you would have Cherno's biography of Hamilton, a little more select, a lot more selective. It tells a story. It wants to introduce you to the figure. And then you have the musical Hamilton. And so the musical Hamilton is very far removed from the events. And I see sort of in biblical scholarship, something similar 
but there would be another layer, which which would be like Hamilton going to the moon to fight Martians, like completely, completely made up and with no basis in reality other than the names. Biblical scholarship, I kind of see that way, is the events that happened and then the detailed like archaeological study, historical background, reconstruction of those events. And then, which is one thing, but then what we have in Scripture which is like a literary telling of those events to give you the character, the purpose, the reason. And then maybe in a modern retelling would be something like a Hamilton where it's like, okay, let me retell it now using a completely different genre and you know, puppet show for kids church or something like that. But they're all still based in or wanting to communicate true events. Mm-hmm. You talk about in the introduction, two pages after the quote I just read, you introduced to readers the concept of minimalists and maximalists and how there are people who read the Bible as minimalists and say, probably none of this happened. If anything, maybe a name is corresponds to somebody, but most likely these are characters that were made up for whatever reason, depending on whatever authorship theory you hold to. And then you have maximalists which would say, no, this is actually pretty much how it would have looked if we had been there with some stylistic uh, differences. So that would, so it's like the Hamilton approach or the historical biography approach kind of thing. Where in that spectrum do you, would you put yourself or do you teach students or do you not encourage students to go in a particular direction? Well, um, I don't, I don't like, uh, having a specific label put on me, but I definitely um, teach against kind of a minimalist position. So the minimalist basically, I think, is based on some bad, uh, bad presuppositions. And so they they argue that uh, the Hebrew Bible text, most of them say they date to the Hellenistic period. Mm-hmm. Uh, some say the Persian period. And so they're not historical because, you know, David is, a, is 500 years before that or something or more. And so they think they can't know anything about that. They've said such sensational stuff as like uh, Hebrew wasn't even an ancient language. It was created at the time Mm -hmm. to create these texts, like stuff that has been proven by epigraphic evidence that that to not be true. Um, So they they used to deny the existence of David, that David was just a literary figure like King Arthur or something. Mm -hmm. And then lo and behold, they find a Stella that mentions the house of David. And then initially they even said um, they... If you look in the footnote of this, one, the, one of the first articles they wrote about this, they question whether that was even found in situ. They basically think it's a forgery. And then they find more of the Phil Van Stella a year later on the same site. And it, it, so they, it just didn't fit their worldview. They, they deny the existence of basically the United Monarchy for sure. Mm-hmm. And even in the um, divided monarchy, they don't think the Bible is really representing much. Um, that could be historical. And they think that they've invented a whole past for these this fledgling people in the Hellenistic period. And so I think there's just heaps of evidence that goes against those presuppositions. Part of the presuppositions are to do with literacy as well. They think if there was uni- no United Monarchy, there was no scribal guild at the time. No one could be recording these events. There was no literacy um, until such late time and then only the elites had it and so there's no way anything could be recorded so we can't rely on anything that the bible says before the uh, um, persian or hellenistic period and they say we only read the bible to basically understand what those authors thought about themselves there's no good history in there at all so i think that's not a defensible position i think it's 
they say things that are uh, the evidence just cannot support. So I, I definitely go against the minimalist position. A maximalist position that would just maybe, may, it depends how we define maximalist and minimalist. Um, I do find the minimalists seem to embrace the the uh, the name. So if you read, there's, there's a series of books uh, edited by Grabby from the historical methodology uh, seminar in Europe. And they're all, they're all published by TNT Clark. You, um, like, uh, can a biblical history of Israel be written? There's one on Sennacherib, but they did Moses speak attic was one of them. Basically mm -hmm. Moses is Hellenistic, but he's all invented. But anyway, in those volumes, they sometimes embrace it and say, I am the minimalist of the group because they have their discussion at the end um, where they just have kind of like what each member said. So, but it's, uh, maximalist is usually seen as a pejorative term right. by those who are more critical in scholarship. Um, but perhaps some people who would sit on that side are happy to be called maximalist. But it's more of a pejorative term, but so is Christian. And then now we embrace Christian as our term. But anyway, I, I, I depends what we mean by maximalist. If maximalist means that we think that uh, against what I was just explaining, that every every word that a character says in the Bible is the transcript, uh, that you would have seen on video, I would not uh, be in that camp if that's what a maximalist right. is. So I definitely um, leave room for a different historiographic uh, art being used and retelling the story creatively. So in that way, some might think I'm not a maximalist, but generally I think that the archaeological evidence supports the biblical picture of ancient Israel. So uh, in some ways, I'm, I'm more of a maximalist, but I don't like the term because of what it might mean to some people. But I, I definitely think that there's really good evidence for um, the, the the picture of the representational picture of ancient Israel that we find uh, from digging up in the ground as well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there I, I'm open to debate and uh, the, go where the evidence leads on a lot of different issues. And there's um, you can't just make a uh, statement about everything in, in the Old Testament being the same archaeologically or historically or even genre-wise. So it's a more sophisticated discussion when you get down to certain events. But I'm yeah. definitely on the more side that I really do think the Bible is, is talking about things that really happened mm -hmm. rather than they're, they're fictional as in they, they invented them out of whole cloth or they didn't happen. Yeah, that's that's and that's why I phrased the question the way I did. Which side, which side would you lean to, or where on the yeah. spectrum? Because it is a spectrum, and and even yeah. among evangelical Christians, you have some that yeah. say, uh, you know, the 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 accounts that we read in Scripture were shaped much more with uh, by the author than uh, actual retelling of the events, and. Some would say, oh, you're a minimalist. That's, you know, you're denying scripture. It isn't. And, and so you always want to be aware. And I always want dojo viewers to be aware of avoiding that dichotomy of not thinking of it as you're either maximalist or you're minimalist. You're either take the Bible seriously or you reject the Bible as completely false. That there's there's a, a wide margin in there. I mean, any any mm -hmm. go to IBR or even ETS where people are pretty much on the same page, you will still get a wide range of views on a number of issues because there's going to be areas of disagreement. You know, you'll have, you'll have solid Bible believing spirit filled evangelical died in the wool conservative Christians who don't think Jonah is a literal historical account. They think is more like a, you know, Hebrew parable or story. And then you'll have people that are like, nope, it's a literal account. And God supernaturally gave Jonah the all the stuff that the text says. And, you know, like they'll just 
Yeah, you have sure. Christians. Just like there's just disagreements on theology, right? We definitely yeah. don't all agree on all the fine points of our theology. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that, that uh, some of that disagreement, I mean, that's why, you know, Disciple Dojo, we, we encourage that sparring with each other, which is what a good Bible, like a Bible conference in, in a good sense, a scholar mm-hmm. conference, that's what it should be. It's you go, you yep. present your work, you have your peers critique your work. They don't, you don't take it personally. You take it as a challenge. Uh, just like if you go into a jujitsu school and you start sparring and the person tries to choke you, you don't take that personally. You're like, oh yeah, that's what we're trying to do to each other. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. And when the timer goes off and the bell rings, then you hug it out. And if they still keep trying to choke you, there's a problem. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's martial arts and, and biblical studies. That's part of what uh, a congruence that I see in them is when they're done in a healthy way, it's to make each other better. And to sharpen and to sure, you know, yeah. develop your arguments. Yeah. You talked about when the Septuagint was was the first to divide, and then it divided and, and renamed the book or named the books uh, Kingdoms, mm-hmm. and put Samuel and Chronicles together. Um, but originally, it was just the Book of Samuel. Yeah, and sure. so, is it so? It, do you when you are teaching through it, do you teach students read this as the Book of Samuel, like don't just read this as two things that were independently originally written. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think just any reader who reads through them will will realize that because the story just keeps continuing, right? So it, there's not some divide that makes you think it's a separate work even, except for that it does end there. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely one one book. It, it breaks it into maybe more manageable sizes. <laughs> well, certainly School to carry around. Things. Yeah, before yep. the printing, before there was like nice, sharp laser printing and small print. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when when people read, when Christians read, the first exposure that most people have to Samuel, the book of Samuel, is through children's stories, like Bible stories. The That's usually, I mean, every five-year-old, if they've even been around Christians at all, they know David and Goliath. Um that's one of the first stories you ever really, really remember from childhood in the Bible. Noah's Ark, uh, <laughs> yeah. David and Goliath, Mo- maybe Moses, Mount Sinai, but even then, that's not as exciting. Samson, definitely remember Samson, Jonah and the whale. You know, there's these iconic stories. And what happens with Samuel, and this has happened in my own life, is familiarity breeds contempt. So you think you know the story, you think you know the account. And, but really, you know, the children's Bible account, you know, a fable because children's Bibles take biblical text, many of them, not all, but many, and they pull out a fable, something that we can teach a kid to give them a nugget of moral guidance. So we have a hero and we have a villain and there's a lesson that's learned at the end of each one. They kind of, and then present it that way for children. Yeah. So most people learn Samuel not as historiography of the ancient Near East, not as the covenant uh, unfolding the divine covenant that God makes makes with His anointed one or any of that. Most people learn it as a collection of fables. How do you avoid that, or how can how can readers? How do you prepare your students to not do that to 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 read it as what it is and appreciate it as what it is? What are some tips you can give us? With with children's curriculum, of which I'm not an expert, but I did live through it because I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, and I, I learned all those stories, too. 
And I remember when I first came to reading the Bible myself, I started to think, oh, wow, I never heard about this part of it. And so there's definitely uh, a lot of editing going on with these stories. Right. For instance, the story of Gideon, I remember learning about that all the time as a kid. And then it wasn't until I was an adult, I read at the end of Gideon's story, how he creates this ephod and leads Israel to to fall, to fall away. Right. Like, what? That's part of Gideon's story? I thought he was just the, his hero. There is, there, the parts of the Bible are rated like, and are very graphic, right? Mm-hmm. Some of those stories, I don't necessarily want my very young kids to read. Um, but as they get older, I think we need to uh, teach more and more of what the story is. And I think that one thing we can try and do is avoid uh, making the Bible say something it's not. So even with kids, sometimes they tell a story just to teach some kind of moral or some way to teach the kids to be good kids or something, right? Like So even in the story of Samuel at the beginning when Hannah gives Samuel to the temple, right? After she asked for, uh, we could use that story to say, see, you should go to church, kids. Look how she brings her kid to church. Well, that's not the message at all, what's going on there, right? But you you pull out uh, something from the Bible that's not being taught in that story just to teach something we want to teach. Mm. And I think that happens sometimes with, with kids. And we want to teach the kids that church is important in their life. Why don't we go to a text that says that? Right. You know, like, don't give up right. uh, um, gathering together, the right. New Testament would say, or or other other aspects. Of it. But let's not try and read a Bible story and then pull something out. Uh, the, what's yeah. the main point of of Joseph when he goes to tell his brothers something and then they kidnap him? I, I think I read this in, in some book that some curriculum would say, be like Joseph. He was obedient to his father. That's the whole point to that text. Well, it doesn't seem at all like what's going on there. Right. I mean, Joseph, in some ways, looks kind of like he's a little spoiled brat. He's a brat. Yeah. <laughs> he gets there, and there's this uh, the brothers are doing terrible things, of course. But to pull that out as the meaning of that story is right. not something the Bible is teaching. So I think you want to. You want to follow what the intent of the text is. And so even when we teach kids, even if we want to edit out, you know, uh, what happens with Lot and his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe you don't want to tell that story right now to your right. kids, but you don't want to tell something that the Bible's not teaching. So they could be used as an illustration of all sorts of things if you just tell part of the story. But what is the point to that story? Like, why don't we stick with trying to teach the Bible's message? And I think that's more helpful. If we if we consider the Bible authoritative, we want to see what the point to that text is and teach that to kids or, or adults as well, mm-hmm. rather than if we start using some text to teach what we want to teach, we've suddenly taken over the authoritative uh, position rather than the Bible. Yeah. So that's a danger that can happen a lot when you're, when you use Bible stories. Yeah. So and what so about I, for adults then like adult readers, are like, okay, I'm going to one day teach my kids or teach my nephews or, you know, grandchildren or whatever. Uh, but I need to know the story first. Like I need to understand what's going on. So for yeah. them, if they're like, Hey, I want to read Samuel, but I've never really read it. I've, I know some of the stories, but I've never really read the book. And then they start reading and they're like, they start to get confused because you have people that are supposed to be good guys, not always acting like good guys and doing things. And and there's ambiguity. The narrator doesn't say, and thus was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. And so he, yeah. there's stuff going on there that is very, there are a lot of shades of gray in Israel's history book at times, or at least it seems that way. So what are some things that, that, viewers should know about adult viewers when they start to really, really study Samuel that will help mitigate some of that concern? Well, I, I think it's important to think of 
the theological purpose of these mm-hmm. books first, and that God is kind of God and his relationship with his people is one is really the main focus. And it's telling the story of you could say salvation history or his relationship with his people. That's that's what's primary, more so than just focusing on characters as role models or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we applied our Bible to ourselves only through role models, we, we might miss out on its focus on God, which is more important. At the same time, I think that um, when you're trying to see what the text is presenting and, and what it's meaning, I do think actually that part of it is to do with um, characters that are exemplary in some ways. So I mean, you have the New Testament pointing back to, you know, Abraham's faith, Job's righteousness. Uh, it's not, there's a biblical precedent for seeing uh, good examples. Um, but everybody is human and they're all uh, sinners. Everybody but Jesus in the Bible fails at some point. And uh, we should be careful to never treat them as an ideal role model. Hmm. But at the same time, um, for instance, David. I think the way it tells the story, there's a good reason David and Goliath is such a famous story. It's it's a fantastic, amazing story, even in, within the Bible. Mm-hmm. And David steps out as this grand character with this amazing speech. And it's just, it's unprecedented in the Bible, even though you have Moses before, but the, he's very heroic. Right. So in some ways, I think David is being presented as a hero. And heroes are important, um, you know, growing up, everybody has heroes. When you think about who you want to be, you think about desirable character traits that I'm going to be, you you tend to actually see them in other people and then want to adopt them, right? Mm-hmm. And I, so I think heroes in the Bible are important in that way. You can look at David and see a lot of desirable um, heroic traits, you could say. Um, he's He's smart. He, you know, he, the way he kills Goliath with the, the sling, kind of probably trying to trick him because he's got the the sling in his hand. He's got a staff in his hand. He doesn't know Goliath doesn't know he's about to shoot him with a sling, which slingers basically take out infantry easy in the ancient world. So it was, it was kind of a smart, cunning way to do it. He's 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 strong. He defeats the enemies. He's caring. He rescues his fellow Israelites even when he's in danger. Like lots of uh, he protects God's priest. He's he's a charismatic. You know, uh, in, in in a lot of these texts, he's resilient while on the run, uh, re- refreshes himself with God. His story is inspiring. He's he's reliable. He keeps covenant with his descendant, uh, the descendants of uh, Jonathan. Sorry, it's my dog. <laughs> Mephibosheth. He 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 takes care of him. And of course, he he's he's known as the psalmist of Israel. If if some of the psalms do come from David, which I, I have no reason to believe that some don't, we do get an insight into some of his his uh, relationship with God. He dances before God, uh, so in a lot of ways, he can be an inspiring heroic figure. But it doesn't take uh, even a superficial reading of the text. You start to see he's definitely not an ideal character, and in fact, his tale becomes a cautionary tale later because you start to see how many things he did wrong and uh the, the you could say the dark side of david's character well, i was going to say do, do, you, do you see him yeah, as something of a do you see him as something of a tragic hero there is there i think there is this life. tragic side of him in the in second samuel there i mean he does some terrible things and he reaps the benefit or the benefits the the judgment of it and in the end i think he is a bit of a tragic a sad character in the end where he doesn't seem to be able to uh ably deal with his family or with the nation either and uh so i think in a lot of ways he does end up being tragic which i think uh 
you know, like when you look back to Second Samuel 12 and his conference, Nathan confronts him. Um, the seriousness of sin is and its consequences are really underscored there. So yeah, I think early on, David does function as a hero, even in the text. And in that way, we can see things that we might want to be like David. And then later we see such terrible uh, decisions and choices that are made. And that can teach us, too, that we can say, oh, I really need to watch myself. So the, uh, I do find some people... There's, you know, there's biographies of David that basically just say everything he's ever done is evil. I don't know if you've ever seen Halpern's or McKenzie's biography, right? McKenzie's uh, methodology uh, is basically he protests too much, this text. Hmm. So it's almost like anywhere it defends David, David actually is guilty of that action. You know, like it says that David had nothing to do with Abner's death, sent him away in peace. Mackenzie would say, well, no, he was probably involved. That's why they're saying he was innocent. Right. You know, so anytime it's defending David, it's because he actually was guilty, which is quite the way of, of, of uh, uh, reading a text. You know, mm -hmm. if I read Mackenzie's work that way, then, well, man. <laughs> like that. But anyway, all I'm saying is I, I, I like a lot of Mackenzie's stuff, so I'm not slamming him as a person. <laughs> and he's a, he's a very meticulous scholar. But I do think that that's a, a flawed way of looking at the biblical story and right. and the uh, and to think of David as nothing but an evil character all the way through, I think he's presented as a complex character from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Even with the Goliath story, you know, he's interested in that reward. He brings it up over and over again. Like, What's going to happen to the person who uh, rescues him? And then he asks again, and his, his brother's like, hey, what are you doing? You're just, you got something's wrong with your heart. And then he goes and asks again. So like three times he asks about the reward. But then when he gets out there, he's he's really takes this theological perspective. He's offended that Goliath is is mocking the armies of Israel who are Yahweh's people. So he he has a genuine theological perspective and a faith that's, but he's also a flawed human being from the beginning. And it's interesting to see him all the way through. And I think it's helpful to remember that that's us, <laughs> that we're flawed all the yeah, way yeah. through. And so an assessment of David, I think, needs to think of it's it's important that we look at, say, his later sins as I could do that, too, mm -hmm. rather than look how bad David was. Yeah, you know, like shake our head at him like he's he's a terrible person. Well, actually, maybe we should actually think about if I was David, would I have done any better? And I think it's it's easy to think we don't like so I know when I teach the Old Testament in church, sometimes people are like those Israelites were so stupid. They see it, saw these miracles and they kept going after other gods. Uh, and rather than thinking, well, what about me? Uh, God, God has shown himself to be real in my life. And then I pursue worldly things for my security. And uh, I live my life for things other than God all the time. So it's actually can be a critique of myself. So I think it's, um, it's better to always have that perspective. And so I think the figure of David is can be heroic in some of his instances, and in other instances can really be a caution that we could fall just like David. And then we're not actually any better than David. I'll, I'll never have the power that David had and the opportunity to do what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. But I should at least be aware that I have that potential. I think, right. right? So, so I think that it's helpful. The Bible story is very helpful. You can see things in characters to emulate, but also a caution, they're a cautionary tale in a lot of ways that we can learn from and hopefully avoid mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes along with what the text is teaching. So, um, without trying to read in some kind of moralism that's not there. I think it is presented, but it's ambiguous, like you said, because you don't often get the narrator showing up saying, and this was good and this was bad, right? right? And sometimes you want done that. In, yeah. Like some some stories you're like, 
I need a clear answer on this. Exactly. This yeah. Seems yeah. Bad. And sometimes it's so ambiguous. You don't yeah. know, right? Yeah. Well, the challenge for readers with any narrative in scripture, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament in the Gospels or Acts or in Israel's history books, is what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. And there is a tendency among Christians to think like like the example, I mean, we're pulling from judges, but it would be Gideon's fleece. And have you put out a fleece to God, you know, and like people read, oh, Gideon put out a fleece and God answered it. And then he did it again. So the God wants me to put out my fleece. Um, and, and that action is never condoned, but God does condescend to interact. So sometimes you look at Old Testament text and you think, well, is this something I should do or should I not do? And I think of Jesus when the Pharisees confronted him about picking grain. And he's like, wouldn't well, you read what David did when he's, and part of me is like this, this is what makes me have to go back and study that passage in the old Testament and then see what Jesus might've been trying to say, because I don't think Jesus was saying, well, if David did something, it's automatically good. Uh, Cause <laughs> you know, he, you can't just commit adultery and be like, well, didn't you read what David did when you, uh, so I don't think that's what Jesus is doing, but on first reading, sometimes it seems that way. And it's like, oh, if David did it, I guess it's okay. That's going to be definitely, that would be a bad, bad hermeneutic. I mean, even the new Testament remembers David's sin when it mentions Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus. It says yeah. Uriah's wife, right? It's never forgotten. Right. So de definitely it doesn't whitewash, uh, David. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that he does become the model for kings in israel and those narrators who used david as the model knew about all his sins mm -hmm. they knew about how he failed but in some way he is still remembered positively in in some aspects of his life so it's 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 interesting it's not like they didn't know about that other part of samuel right. that told about right, all his right. flaws so so where where do you think that came from or how would you how would you trace that development that David can be such a mixed figure in the Old Testament and then the New Testament time authors know that, but yet still, you know, Jesus's title, son of David. How did well, that I, I really think that the legacy of David shows us God's grace in, in, in a lot of ways, because um, how, how can this person not have been written off after right. the things he did? Right. Um, but God's covenant with David um in 2 Samuel 7, is a perpetual covenant that even if he sins, I'm not going to take away my chesed from him. Mm -hmm. So there's this there's this uh, gracious aspect to it that it's not actually based on the works of the Davidides, but it's on his commitment to the line, right? That he's going to bring he's going to bring about um, well, eventually the Messiah, from, uh, the Son of David, becomes a messianic title, right? Um, do you see a parallel with Abraham in that way that God chose Abraham for unspecified reasons and Abraham's not a paragon of virtue. He's not evil, but he's also not a paragon yeah. of virtue all the time. And yet that unconditional promise through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It keeps going. Do you see that kind of being recapitulated in David, but like zoomed in on the monarch? Or? Yeah, no, it's very similar in that case. Cause I mean, with Abraham, he seems to be a flawed character too, obviously, you know, like mm -hmm. trying to pass his wife off as his sister a couple of times right. and uh, some of the things he did, but in other instances, Abraham is also heroic in rescuing mm -hmm. Lot and things that he does, but he's, he's a complex character too, mm -hmm. but it's uh, the covenant depends on God and his graciousness, not on um, the, 
the perfect works of the individual. And we can all be glad that that is the case, that God is a, a gracious God. But I, I think we see that in David um, as well, this, that, that his legacy is not gone because of his sins. I right. think it, it at least speaks to God's grace. Although, uh, as I mentioned, uh, David being a heroic figure in some ways, he did. In, in some aspects, he was an exemplary figure as well. So rather than completely say, no, everything he did was bad, uh, I, I think that the Bible presents him in positive ways, but also highlights his, his negative ways too. Well, let me ask you, why don't you think uh, that God could have exhibited that same grace? And, and, and let me preface this. Whenever we ask a why question, we always have to be content with, we may not know. Um, but but I'm just I would like to know your personal opinion why God would not have shown that type of grace to Saul and perpetuated his line forever, but he does with David. Is is that a an, is that a question that we just can't answer because it's hidden in the inscrutable will of God, or do we see clues in the text for why that might be the case, or how, where do you land on that? I know we, I didn't send you that question in advance, but it's just, that's what I'm thinking of right now. And Well, it's, it's kind of related to um, some, of, some of the questions about the role of Samuel that we were thinking of talking about and, mm -hmm. and Saul. I, I think there is a clear difference between Saul and David that is not as mysterious as some um, point mm -hmm. uh, or, or consider. When we look at the sins of David, of course, uh, his horrific murder of Uriah, stealing Uriah's wife, uh, it's it's terrible. But when you look at Saul, a lot of people forget what Saul was like too. And, you know, he murders the entire town of Nob, the priestly town, doesn't leave a man, woman, or child standing. He basically does harem to this priestly town. Um, later, Samuel will say he's made himself the enemy of God. And I think a key difference between Saul and uh, David is David is quick to repent. Um, and you might not think it's much of a repentance when he gets confronted with sin by Samuel. I'm Nathan. He quickly says, I've sinned. Right. And he confesses right away for a, a perfect parallel frame would be going back to first Samuel 15 with Saul. And when uh, he disobeys the Lord um, and we can talk more about, uh, say, Middleton's thesis on this, if we want, I'm happy to. Uh, yeah. Well, let me let me segue into yeah. that then, because I, sure. I yeah. do want to ask about it. Some people, when it comes to Samuel and Saul and their relationship, like our mutual friend, Richard Middleton, um, he he and I have talked a little bit about in his reading that he presented at SBL of, of uh, Samuel as a prophet on a short leash, so to speak, and that his idea was that Samuel is not always on the same page with God uh, at times and acts of his own accord sometimes. And and so there's this this interesting dynamic that he suggests. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that and on the character of Samuel himself. Is he good guy, bad guy, paragon of virtue, somebody that we should look at with a little suspicion, also a tragic figure like Saul, or like what do we do with this sure. sort of triangle of, of Samuel, Saul, David that kind of dominate at least the first Samuel for sure? Yeah, well, Samuel um, is definitely a complex figure. Some people, because he's a prophet, uh, don't. And traditionally haven't read him that way at all because he's a prophet he must be good through and through but um he's also a judge of israel as you read those the books of the stories of judges we know that the judges can be self-centered samson does virtually nothing that he thinks is helping israel he just chases women and only ends up helping israel 
on the side through his anger against people who uh, were against him. So you definitely have self-interested judges, and Samuel is uh, the last to judge Israel. And so he definitely shows a lot of self-interested characteristics. But I think sometimes the question is is posed, and I, uh, I Richard and I are, are friends too, and he's a, he's a great guy. He's he he himself. We were just chatting a, a, like a month ago or something. He was saying that he is a has a contrarian um, bent to him, uh, which makes it easy to write new scholarship because he says he <laughs> when he's doing research he always disagrees with everything he reads, <laughs> which I thought was funny. But I mean that is uh, to be able to read critically is really important to be a good scholar rather than just accept it all. Right? right. Sometimes we have students come in and they they just like everything they read, so they don't know how to argue anything originally. Mm. He does not have that problem. <laughs> no. So, But he's not the first to point to the complexity in Samuel. Robert Polzin in his book, Samuel and the Deuteronomist, is one of the first I know, and he does a, a really good job of pointing out aspects of the text that really are highlighting Samuel's uh, self-interested side, mm. which might start even with how he is upset personally that they're asking for a king, right? Mm -hmm. And God's saying, no, they're rejecting me, not you, but Samuel's upset. And then uh, reading his actions after that in light of this um, uh, his frustration with the people and, and, and wanting him to be replaced, I think is very helpful. But I mean, Middleton sets it up like like what we were just talking about. David is forgiven when he confesses, right. and Saul is not forgiven. Uh, but if you look at 1 Samuel 15, um, the issue seems to be repentance. When mm -hmm. Saul is confronted, at first he says, the people did it. Right. Like right, uh, right. you can pause the video and check out 1 Samuel 15 if you want. The first thing he says, the people did it, he says in verse 15. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I did obey. Um, so he's making all these excuses. He's not repenting. Mm -hmm. And then he says, the people forced me to do it later. And then eventually he does say, I sinned. But he want, what he wants is to save face in front of everybody. He says, you know, come back with me in front of the elders, Samuel. And the word for come back there is shuv, which is mm -hmm. often is repent. Right. So he may be saying, repent with me in front of the elders. This is something Polzin brought out in his initial reading on Samuel there. And so Saul is still just trying to save face. There doesn't seem to be any genuine repentance. Another word for repent is Naham in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And in it's a key word in that chapter. In 1 Samuel 15, you find God Nahams, Samuel Nahams, but the last verse there says, but not Saul. There's no Nahaming at all. Mm -hmm. Now, Naham can mean he's upset, he's he's he regrets, or he repents. But he the, the narrator points out that um, God is upset and regrets it. Samuel regrets. There's no regretting, no nahaming from Saul. So I think there's a real juxtaposition between the reactions of the two when they're caught in sin. Mm -hmm. Saul refuses to repent. David quickly repents. Now, David's repentance is very short, and that might be offensive to some people. Like, shouldn't he be like bowing down and crying and you know, it needs to be a longer repentance. Right. But maybe that's just us misunderstanding how how God. That repentance is not a work that earns our forgiveness, but God sees the heart and and forgives. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there is a big difference between Saul and David in that way. Mm -hmm. And even in their character as you go along, um, you have this promise, and we can segue into talking about this too, but the, God's preparing a man after his own heart. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about what that means, which is really interesting. But someone yeah. who's better... It says specifically, right? And then David seems to be that guy. There seems to be something going on with David who's better than Saul. Mm. Saul, I think, is a tragic figure. Right. Um, 
I wrote an article in this book, Characterization in, in Samuel, where I look at Saul's fatal flaw, I called it, which was kind of his low self-esteem. At the beginning, he's kind of this bumbling figure. He's kind of likable in that way, but he's, right, right. he's, he's, he's so humble. He's not leading very well. He's hiding in the baggage when they're voting in and mm-hmm. all sorts of things. And then he seems very concerned with his prestige. Like even when he's caught in sin, he wants to... Uh, in front of the elders, let's make this right, you know, and, or earlier it said he set up a monument in his honor, and he's very concerned with this kind of thing. Even in death, he's concerned that they are going to make fun of me, mm-hmm. uh, and he wants, he wants to kill himself rather than be made fun of. I think that there's this, and there's, uh, along with this is this uh, reliance on his superstitious ritual in Saul's life. He's always needs some kind of superstitious guidance. Mm-hmm. Or, or you could say ritualistic, maybe, guidance. So even when he doesn't wait for Samuel to come for the sacrifice, he, he's got to do it because something's got to happen. Mm-hmm. Even when they win the fight, um, he he passed lots to find out who the sinner is, uh, even though it's pretty obvious he's the one who didn't wait. The people ate food with blood in it, and then he cast these lots, and his son Jonathan, the only guy who was heroic that day, and relied on Yahweh is found out to be the sinner. And then he swears, oh, soul, you're going to die. I swear by God. He's always looking for some kind of ritualistic guidance. And it drives me crazy when God starts and stops answering him. So at the end of his life, he has to even go to a medium or a witch mm-hmm. and try and get a word, right? So he's, he's so reliant on this. He's kind of addicted to this uh, superstitious ritual. Um, as compared to David, I think that their, their characters are juxtaposed. And I already mentioned how he slaughters that entire town of Nob. He's paranoid. He thinks everybody's out to get him. He tries to kill David, who is completely innocent, uh, tries to spear him against the wall, tries to kill his son as well. Mm-hmm. He's a very unstable character. Now, Middleton would say a lot of that has to do with how Samuel treated him. Right. right. Or that he treated him unfairly uh, uh, through a lot of this. Mm-hmm. So, and some of it is, is it's a, uh, it's a fascinating reading, and I think it is worth reading Samuel's story in light of his clear self-interest when they ask for a king. Okay, so this is your first hint that Samuel's not an ideal character. Mm-hmm. Now, early on, Samuel is led um, said to be, um, you know, the, the word of the Lord is coming through him at the end of chapter 3. God doesn't let his words fall to the ground. Um, he's this powerful prophet who leads Israel to repentance in chapter 7. He is a towering figure. Um, that God speaks through. So he's not a false prophet. Right. Um, but later on, we can see maybe some self-interested actions. When, when they ask for a king, um, God says, yeah, it's okay to reject me, not you. Give him a king. Mm-hmm. And then Samuel goes and just says, you don't want a king, basically, if you read that. Whole right, section. Samuel's more upset. Take, take, take. Yeah. He's, he's really upset. And he, it sounds to me like he's trying to talk them out of a king, mm-hmm. even though God said, tell them we're going to give him a king. Right, right. Instead, he's like, the king's going to be so bad. At the end of that chapter, he says, I think it's chapter eight, basically says, it's going to be so bad under that king that you're going to call out to God in your distress after the king enslaves all of you, and God's not going to listen to you. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem to be what God said at all. Right, right. God didn't say, I'm never going to listen to you if you do this. He just said, no, give him a king. And, and God, uh, had, God had mentioned the, the, the criteria for a king back in Deuteronomy. Uh, well, mm-hmm. if you if you're a, believe. Yeah. That Deuteronomy came before uh, Samuel. I know some minimalists would balk at that suggestion too. But if you take scripture at face value, Deuteronomy had established that there, having a king is not, God didn't have a problem with there being a king. That, that oh. passage has always been, I've heard it preached so much 
by preachers that are just reading the Samuel passage and maybe aren't aware of Deuteronomy, that the kingship was entirely the people's idea. And they only, I mean, they do say, yes, give us a king so we can be like the other nations. So they are, you know, wanting their own, we want to be like everybody else. But at the same time, I've just heard so many sermons that I remember over the years saying that acting as if what Samuel was saying was what God was saying because Samuel is a prophet. And I, I think of like, you don't have to, it just because you're a prophet doesn't mean you're always in step with God. Like Jonah is a great example. Uh, but even Balaam is treated in the text as legitimately hearing from Yahweh. I mean, God in that passage tells him to, to tell him what it would be like under a king. Mm-hmm. And some of what he says there is perfectly legitimate. The right. king is going to take people to, to be his soldiers. He's going to take money for a standing army or whatever. He's going to be taking all these things. And that's what a king does. They wanted this king to fight their battles. They want a king to organize them and they want they want an army. They want defense. So some of what he's saying is actually that's got to be what a king does. But then he goes on and says, basically, he's going to enslave all of you. It's like it gets worse and worse. Maybe when people are saying, "Okay, we're okay, we're okay with that. And by the end, he's like, no, 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 he's going to enslave you. And then God will never even listen to you again. I think he's gone way too far there because at the end of that passage, God even says, no, no, give them a king. He reiterates it at the end. Right. And then Samuel just says, go home. So a lot of people are like, didn't God just say, give him a king? Yeah. I mean, maybe the king was in that audience. Maybe Saul was out in that audience. I don't know. But yeah. anyway, he sends him home, which almost sounds like he's uh, obfuscation or he's he's delaying things a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the Bible predicts um, that there will be a king. Even, even back in Numbers, mm-hmm. Numbers 24 says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. It seems a scepter, it seems to indicate king. Yeah. And then you have Genesis 50, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Or the ruler's staff, and that's getting more specific. The tribe of Judah is going to be have a king, it seems, or something like that. And uh, the kings are are prophesied to come from Abraham in Genesis 17, and then again in Genesis 35 to Jacob. It says that um, kings are going to be your descendants. So the the kingship doesn't seem to be against God's providential plan. And then, of course, in Deuteronomy it says, when you enter the land, you're going to say. Uh, set a king for us, this is what it's supposed to be like. So there's rules about it. But yeah. it definitely doesn't go against everything that God had planned. And we see, of course, how the Davidic king becomes such an important part of yeah. his Israel. And then ultimately the the messianic king, you know, Jesus exactly, himself. Yeah. And that that's it's just one of those things that again, growing up just hearing bits and pieces of the Samuel stories and Israel's history. I, I don't even know exactly where, but just the idea that I held for a long, for way longer than I should have held as somebody who studied scripture was that kingship was plan B. You know, they, they, God wanted to be their king and people mm-hmm. just leave it at that. And it's like, well, God wanted to be their king and he wanted his, their king to be his vice regent or his, you know, God is the ultimate yeah, king, yeah. but he still has a king. And it it showed to me it's a great example. And even this discussion we're having about some people are listening to this, watching this, and I'm sure they're like, wait, what? I don't remember any of that complexity or any and they're gonna go back and read Samuel and Saul and, and this interactions, and they're gonna read it a little more carefully. And they're gonna look for that shade of nuance. And where is Samuel speaking in line with God? And where is he, you know, like Richard would say, pulling against the leash? Um of yeah. what God is actually saying. And I love good biblical scholarship, 
because it raises these type of questions without saying, therefore, you don't need to believe any of this, or therefore, this is all proof that these are human agenda. None of that. Just the text has complexity because why would we not expect there to be complexity in an inspired ancient historiography if God gave, if that's what God gave to us? Well, a key part of the whole, uh, a key part of kind of the debate that Middleton has about Samuel's character. And I think he's, he's right by and large, but I I disagree with some aspects of it, Uh, but just like Polson started it and uh, Barbara Green, um, Keith Bodner, a lot of them have written about Samuel's complexity, you could say, or that Mm -hmm. the self-interested prophet, at least sometimes, but uh, Middleton seems to be able to interpret almost everything he does after that as as part of the self-interest but a key thing that i disagree with richard on mm-hmm. um i don't like to disagree with him very many times he's, he's <laughs> such a great scholar but uh is uh in first king i mean in uh first samuel 15 this is a key thing is that middleton points out that saul is condemned for not killing the amalekites and for mm-hmm. taking spoil you know the story that's one thing he, he disobeys yeah. But David later attacks the Amalekites, doesn't eradicate them, and takes spoil, and he doesn't get in trouble for it. If, you, if you're familiar with that story, that's when he's living with the Philistines. Back when the Philistines are going to go fight Israel, he wasn't allowed to join them. He came back, and the Amalekites had, had kidnapped their, um, their, their wives and children, and they had to go fight them. Uh, he, he tried to wipe them out, but it says he wiped all of them out except for, is it like 700 of them fled on horses? It's, it's kind of a funny phrasing. He wiped them all out, but 700 or whatever it is, a big group. But anyway, he doesn't uh, manage to completely wipe them out. But I think the difference here is about disobedience. Um, David is actually never commanded there to utterly wipe them out by the prophet. And then David has a chance to wipe them out and chooses not to. And David is not told not to take spoil and then take spoil anyway. So I think there's a clear difference. Now, Middleton says that only Samuel ordered that not mm-hmm. god this is how the, the distinction is made and if you look at the beginning of first samuel 15 he's uh he comes to saul and he says hey listen i'm the one who anointed you listen to the word of the lord and he tells him you're going to enact my wrath on uh, amalek so R- richard says well look it's again you get it's all about Samuel." he's like like hey it's me i anointed you well he did but mm-hmm. um he thinks he's posturing and that the word of the Lord he's speaking there is just Samuel's word, not God's. Right. And that's the distinction. Now, whenever someone's speaking in the Bible, except for a narrator or God, um, it could be suspect. So Samuel is a self-centered, uh, not self-centered, a self-interested character, at least at times. Right. Hmm. And so his words could be suspect because it's not the narrator saying that God said this. But he does use the traditional form, thus says the Lord in verse 2, and then he tells them the command, what to do with Amalek, and not to take spoil, but to utterly wipe them out. So it's a big issue whether, is that really God's word, or is that Samuel's? If it's just Samuel's, then Saul's disobeying is uh, it's just all Samuel's fault. Samuel's setting him up for a fall. Hmm. Um, but if it is God, and then he refuses to obey, he's disobeying God. Okay, so it comes down to how much we should trust Samuel's words there in the text. I think as he uses that traditional, thus says the Lord command, it seems to me that he's actually, he is a prophet and he's bringing God's word. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richard points out that you have the Hananiah, the false prophet in Jeremiah also says, thus says the Lord and has a false prophecy, right? Right. Um, So I think that's not the greatest comparison unless you're going to really come out and say Samuel is a false prophet. 
Mm. Not just that he was self-interested, but he he completely brings a fabricated word of the Lord under the traditional, thus says the Lord. And I don't think that's what's going on here. But, I mean, he, he's got a legitimate um, parallel there in that a false prophet uses that phrase as well. Yeah. So um, is it that Samuel is a completely negative, false character? Or are there aspects of how he acts that God works with him, but things could have been better? And I think that's my view. I think that that is a genuine word of the Lord. And part of me that makes it think it is uh, in that weird, one of the weirdest stories in the Bible, when uh, when Saul goes to the medium at Endor. Yeah. And uh, he brings up Samuel. When Samuel shows up, he says explicitly in 1 Samuel 28, he says, The Lord has done what he predicted through me. He's torn the kingdom out of your hands, given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Now, earlier Samuel had said, he's given it to one of your neighbors who's better than you, but never named David, right? So now it's explicitly David. Mm -hmm. And he says that the Lord commanded through me. So unless he's lying um, post-mortem as well, yeah. <laughs> you know, what motive does he have to lie in the afterlife? But anyway, and also he says in verse 18, 1 Samuel 28, 18, he says, because you did not obey Yahweh or the Lord and carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. So he says very explicitly there, it's not my word, it's the word of Yahweh. And he's speaking post-mortem. Um, I think it it pretty, pretty much legitimates that that word was the word from Yahweh, not just Samuel's command. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Richard points out in his in his article on this that there could be some ambiguity. Mm -hmm. But later in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel does say, you've disobeyed the Lord. But he doesn't reiterate what in what way he did there. So Richard's like, well, it's a little ambiguous. What did the Lord really want? But it seems pretty clear at the beginning of the chapter, according to Samuel, the Lord himself said, wipe out the Amalekites. Yeah. And then he reiterates it in his postmortem appearance. For me, I, I think it's pretty hard to get around the fact that God ordered that around and that Saul disobeyed. And so there is an issue of disobedience that separates Saul and David. Hmm. David didn't wipe out the Amalekites, but he wasn't commanded to. So I think that's an unfair um, comparison between the two. Right. And so th that's where I kind of part a little bit. I think yeah. a lot of what Saul does, uh, I think it's it should be read with uh, Samuel, I mean, with um, some skepticism of, of what he's doing. Like when he shows up, uh, he's supposed to show up seven days for the sacrifice. He shows up late, it seems, the narrator says. Hmm. We could say it was purposeful or he's just tardy, but it's not looking good because the narrator even says Samuel didn't show up at the right time. So in some ways, it's sympathetic reading to Saul there. Yeah. But whether he was trying to entrap Saul, that's what some people think. He waited in the bushes and as soon as he offered sacrifice, come out. Ah, I caught you. Right. So, some read it that way. And it's an interesting uh, reading. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's the case. But for sure with chapter 15, I think there's a clear violation that uh, Saul disobeyed. And then he wouldn't give up the kingdom. He's told uh, after chapter 13, when he offers a sacrifice, he's told his dynasty is not going to continue. Not necessarily that he's lost the throne now, but he's not going to have a, a dynasty. And then in 15, he's told you, you're no longer king, but he continues to hold on to it fiercely, right? And tries to wipe out anyone he thinks might be a successor. So I think there's a clear distinction between Saul and David that's less ambiguous than some people think. Mm -hmm. Well, there's the, these these type of discussions, again, if, if viewers are watching this and you're not as familiar with these chapters off the top of your head, uh, 
that's okay. Like I'm hoping that this discussion will motivate people to want to go back and like, Oh, wait a minute. I thought I knew that book. Maybe I don't know it as well. And to reread the characters, reread Samuel with the book of Samuel with, uh, with some of that ambiguity in mind, like read it with one reading in mind and then read it again with another reading in mind and see what fits best. See what makes the most sense of the text uh, the, these are, these are healthy discussions and these are, this is a good example of biblical sparring, uh, when yeah, for sure. having I mean, different, di- arriving at different conclusions, but you're, you're both taking into account all the evidence and, uh, responding to, oh, that's a good argument. But then what about this? Oh yeah, well that makes sense. But then what about this? That, I mean, that's what people have been doing since the Hebrew Bible came about. Sure, it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's all and Richard's thesis is is very helpful in in so many ways. Just mm-hmm. uh, so I would say, if there was a continuum on Saul's Samuel's character, I think it's not quite as bad as maybe Richard does. Right. Um. And, and that in a lot of ways, he still is he's God's prophet, and uh, he did bring the word of the Lord there. And even later, in uh, when uh, David flees and he goes to Ramah, Samuel kind of rescues him with his prophets as as the the people coming to chase him keep falling down and have these ecstatic experiences. And then even Saul does, yeah. but Samuel clearly has some self-interest. He gets upset when they're going to uh, pick another King. He seems kind of blind to the sins of his sons, mm-hmm. even though the reason for the, the wanting a King is his sons are corrupt. And then in chapter 12, uh, which is four chapters later, he says, look, my sons and I are with you and things have been great. It seems like, well, no, actually they're, they're a big problem. Yeah. So Sam seems to have this blind spot with his sons. He seems to, when he retells the the story of asking the king, get the details wrong in chapter 12, he seems to suggest it's, uh, they asked for this king after Nahash has attacked them. Well, in the story, it seems that they asked before Nahash attacks them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that the main issue is Samuel's getting old, they say, and your sons are corrupt. That's why they actually wanted it, but he doesn't acknowledge that. So there's a lot of self-interested, um, or, or oration going on there. And he goes on and on about how he's been so good. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, I've, I've never taken anything from you, right? No, nope, you haven't. Great. I haven't done this, right? It's good. So in some ways, he's protesting a lot at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. But by and large, the character was a good leader of Israel. But I think he does, uh, he ends up trying to install his sons as judges too. And judges are things that God appoints when you look back at the mm. book of Judges. So he's setting up this kind of dynasty for himself. So it's no wonder he's upset when there's going to be a king and a new dynasty. That means his dynasty has gone, right? So okay. Keith Bodner makes a lot of, uh, about that. And I think Barbara Green in the comparison with this dynastic impulse that Samuel had, which gets undermined by the dynasty that God is going to found. So it, it's a fascinating study looking at his character. And I well, encourage you to read stuff. Or read Bodner's stuff. Uh, yeah, it's still a really good read. His Samuel and the Deuteronomist. I, I'll link some of these uh, works that we're talking about in the show yeah. notes so people can see. But this this ties into what we started this discussion about anyway, which is how do you avoid reading Samuel as a fable or a series of fables by noticing these types of things, by noticing the complexity, by noticing the ambiguity, by asking yourself, hey, yeah, how how much am I supposed to emulate this person? Instead of just saying, oh, well, Samuel's who the book's named after, so he must always be the good guy, or he's a prophet, so he must always be right. Noting these levels of complexity is not undermining scripture. It's actually what the text invites readers to do. 
and it's what we should be doing. And it prevents the fabulizing of Israel's history, probably more than anything else. You know, in fables, there are not levels of depth to the characters. You have a good guy and a bad guy. That's Aesop's fables. You got the good animal and the bad animal or the wise and the unwise. Jesus's parables, the wise and the foolish, the sheep and the goats, the good parables and fables don't have these layers of complexity that historiography, because it's being written about real people who really existed, naturally includes. Because real people exactly. are. And I think that's one of the amazing things about the stories in the Bible is that their heroes are are painted warts and all. <laughs> like, I remember I was talking, I used to do this, uh, be involved in the street ministry, and uh, I had this... Uh, guy who was a muslim come up to me and he started arguing with me against the bible saying uh look at david uh the the bible maligns david's character by saying he did these bad things and he was like you would never do that i would never do that they're lying about him because david's not like that so in their traditions they're kind of whitewashed as a saint um um but they missed the whole thing that actually we can learn so much by seeing them this way. And we see the real people for one thing, and that we can avoid mistakes by seeing examples as well. Right. Even the new Testament looks back and says, these things are told for your benefit. Right. Right. Um, so right. definitely it is not this kind of idealistic flat book with flat characters, just telling the moral of the story is it's mm -hmm. very complex. And I think um, God made it that way because it's very compelling. We see our, Story is so important with how we even think about ourselves and our existence. We might not even be conscious of it, but we we probably think in story quite a bit when we even think of our memories or our life. And oh yeah, and story is a way that we come to see truth and so much more than a simple fable. When you're reading these complex stories of these complex characters, I think there's just so much that's rewarding that we can learn from it, and so much mm -hmm. theological depth. That yeah. I'm glad God didn't just drop a systematic theology out of the sky and say, that's all you need. Right, right. <laughs> I think that there, we need that kind of flesh on the bones. The Torah has all the laws, but we also need the stories. You know, the New Testament's got Paul's epistles, but we got the book of Acts to see some examples mm -hmm. of people living the faith. And uh, I think that we have that with David, too. Some good examples, some bad examples. Mm -hmm. And it's like that throughout the historiography of the Bible. Yeah, narrative narrative is way more effective at communicating values and ideals. And uh, I mean, there's a reason people will go spend billions of dollars a year going to movies, but maybe a couple of thousand people will go sit in and listen to lectures. Uh, right. You know, it's like there's it's all and it's always been that way. It's always going back way back. Um, I last year I read for the first time I'd never. I, I didn't ever read growing up um, Homer, Iliad and the Odyssey. And I read those last year for the first time. And, and I was actually struck with how many parallels during Iliad, especially the Iliad, that I was seeing with some of what I was reading in Samuel. And, you know, they were roughly in the same time period if both were written by who they claimed to be written by. But there were just so many... It, it it kept reaffirming what you see in scripture, which is telling narrative to communicate values, concepts, ideals, rather than just, like you said, propositional truth, you know, systematic. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you need to live. But a lot of times today, especially we, we, we want that people want, give me the proposition. Just tell me what I have to believe. Tell me the mental truths I have to assent to, and I'll agree to those 
and then I'll just go on living my life. And, and scripture has never given that. It's always said, okay, here's a story. It starts in a garden. It's going to end in a garden. Uh, you know, here's the big picture over art. Here's where you fit into it. Here's who it's about. But we, we want it. We want the, you know, we just want the simplified. We want the tracked version instead of the textual version. Yeah. Yeah. I think people, like you said, I think that movies is a good illustration. People love to watch TV, movies, read novels, and not so much just have a lecture. That's because it's such a compelling medium where you can see people, even in a fictional novel that you can relate to, at least at some point, and mm -hmm. can learn from or see horrific things being happening. My my wife loves um, murder mysteries, so she reads murder mysteries all the time. Yeah. There's you know, all sorts of terrible things happen. Wives killing their husbands, husbands cheating on them, all these terrible things. <laughs> what is it about it you like so much? But it's just this compelling human drama, right, that you right. can kind of relate to and you can think about doing and not doing things and learn from situations, but even more so when it's, it, it's historical people as well, this, this really happened and we can, we can learn from these things. It's much more compelling than just a, a lecture on correct behavior right. or something like that. Right. Absolutely. One of the challenges with narrative though, is with like with any other genre in scripture, but one of the challenges is getting to, is being able to hear the story through the layers of language uh, history, culture, archaeology, you know, idioms, figures of speech, especially if you're reading from like an older sure. translation, maybe that doesn't bring it out as easily. And then, like you mentioned, there's just there's weird stuff in there sometimes that happens. So let me throw out a few uh, topics and you just get, you can give off the cuff, like just some ways to think about it uh, that you found helpful for students. But Samuel's ghost What's going on there? Was that actually Samuel's ghost? Was that a false spirit that the false diviner, you know, necromancer brought up from the dead? Or was it actual Samuel? Yeah. And then so what well, does that tell us about life after death? And or does it tell us anything? What was your take on that? It's a wild story. It yeah. is. I think it's one of the uh, craziest stories you, you see in Scripture. And it has some scholars divided on what what's being presented as happening. Um and so some some have made a pretty good case that it's just a charlatan. This woman's a charlatan. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, uh, you know, Saul is the tallest guy in all of Israel, head, head and shoulders over everybody else. He shows up in the middle of the night, shows up at her door. Who's this huge, tall dude? Mm -hmm. She might have already known it was Saul. But anyway, she doesn't let on. He comes in, says he wants to uh, uh, bring up someone. And she right away says, hey, Saul said we're not supposed to do that. She probably already knows it's Saul, right? She's mentioning, no, we'll get in trouble. Saul's already kicked everyone out. If you if you have open your Bible to 1 Samuel 28, you can kind of see where I'm, I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. And then uh, and then he says Samuel, and he brings him up, and uh, she brings up Samuel. And what does Samuel say? Virtually all the same things he said before. And it it's at least conceivable that people would have heard about these prophecies that Samuel was against Saul. I mean, it happened in public places. Uh, the word could have been out there. So uh, any good charlatan can say, I'm bringing up your grandpa. And, and they use whatever they can, little hints that they've gotten from talking with you about what your grandpa might be like. And then they'll say they're speaking for your grandpa. It seems that she's the only one who hears Samuel because like he's asking, what, what was he saying? And she's communicating it. So in that way, it could be. Um, she's just making this all up, right? And so she's saying the type of stuff uh, 
Now, if, if she was a complete charlatan, you might say, why would she say you're going to die tomorrow and this is all bad because hmm. it's all might kill you for it. Maybe you just say it's all going to be OK. Right? right. Maybe that's more of a charlatan's kind of thing. And um, so maybe that goes against it. But and also against it is the narrator who says Samuel was there. Hmm. Now, you could read it with quotation marks or something. And Samuel showed up. Right, right. Not that there's quotation marks in uh, in the Hebrew, but it's conceivable you could read it as a literary device where you'd say, and yeah, sure enough, Samuel shows up. But it, it does say Samuel shows up. So I, I actually side on the, that it, Samuel really did come. Mm-hmm. But um, I understand the other the other one is very interesting, too, and it, it could be kind of compelling. And uh, she, she seems to know. He says, you're Saul. She figures it out. Well, so she knew all along and she knew what to say. Uh, maybe yeah but it does seem it could be part of the act but when this god comes out of the ground says elohim um she screams it says it could be that hey this isn't how these things normally work right it's, right something's really happening here she sees the real thing so she's freaking out and she's like you're saul and what am i got myself into here and uh and then samuel speaks the word of the lord and and predicts saul and his sons are going to die and uh, it all comes true. Um, so it seems to be a, a real appearance of of, of Samuel. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, some scholars say, well, in the ancient Near East, they believed in seances. Uh, you could uh, call up the dead. There's often an old woman who's involved in these rituals that we see from the ancient Near East. It's probably like this woman here. Mm-hmm. And so the primitive audience would have thought this was possible. And so that those are people who discount the historicity of it altogether. Right. Um, so it could be a charlatan and it really happened. But if it really happened, I would have to say, I think God made it happen. Mm-hmm. That is, God brought up Samuel for one last word to Saul. Right. In, in some ways, this could be God's gracious act towards Saul. He didn't have to reiterate his word to him at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but he comes out and he reminds him, you disobeyed uh, um, my words. And this is why this is happening. Maybe it's one last chance for Saul to repent. You know, uh, prophets often bring out God's word to elicit repentance without saying repent. Right. You know, so instance in, in Jonah, of course, he he preaches at Nineveh and says, 40 days, Nineveh will be thrown down. That's all he says. Yeah. He doesn't say repent. Well, there's a chance. Doesn't offer him a chance, but then they repent. Right. So this this word, this final word from Samuel could be one last chance. Saul, repent. Doesn't mean you're not going to die, but repent. Like You see how it's all going to end. And you've disobeyed. All he has to do is repent. So uh, that's the way I read it. Mm. Uh, whether it tells us anything about the afterlife, um, I'm, I'm not sure we can really drive anything out of that. If God does this as some kind of special miracle uh, or a gracious dispensation to Saul to give him one last word, um, I don't. I don't think we can learn. Oh, we could learn. God could do that. Yeah, I have no problem <laughs> thinking God could do whatever He wants. So right, right. So He could do that at all. I don't think it's teaching that seances work. I don't think it's that in in, in any way. Well, I've heard some um, people say it's teaching. Um, I've heard some people press it more in terms of personal eschatology, that uh, this is during the Old Testament time. So nobody went and died and went to heaven. You went to Sheol where you rested until the coming right. of the Messiah who would raise the dead and do all that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, it could fit into one of those views. But at the same time, because I, I'm saying God is all powerful and mm-hmm. brought Samuel in. It may not speak to either either view 
just this instance, but it may fit in with one of your uh, ways of understanding the afterlife. Do you find that, do you, do you take a similar approach to, I know another passage, I didn't mention this to you before we talked, but I'm thinking of it now is, um, you know, when David's child dies and he says the famous, you know, I will go to him, he won't come to me. And some people will base a whole doctrine of like the age of accountability or right, that, right. that, you know, children are saved and that David's talking about heaven. Do you think that that's valid or is that putting more on the text than the text can bear? Um, I think it's it's uh, a bit anachronistic in putting those ideas into David. I think David is basically saying, I'm going to die, but he's not going to come back. Hmm. So go to him. He may be thinking Sheol. I mean, the abode of the dead. In the Old Testament, they had some ideas of death and some ideas of afterlife uh, at times too, but they certainly didn't have a clear picture. How clear is our picture today, actually, even in the New Testament? Yeah. I fully believe in a resurrection and that will uh, to... Uh, uh, die is gain when we're in Christ. So I'm not at all denying or thinking of something like that, but we don't really know a lot, right, about specifics. In the Old Testament, they definitely had less revelation, you might say, yeah. if you believe in some kind of progressive revelation into the New Testament, which which I do. Um, so I think David there is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to go with, but he's not coming back. I think that's probably what the character is meaning there, rather than uh, he went to heaven because he hadn't sinned yet because he hadn't been the age of accountability. Right, uh, right. I don't think that's we should read that in, mm. even if that's maybe a good doctrine. Right. You know? Even if it's allowed for it. Um, the, sure. Yeah. The, the, that, I just don't that think text. it's being taught there. Right. So right. just like I earlier, you could teach you got to take kids to church with Hannah bringing Samuel. I don't think that's what's being taught in San, uh, with Hannah and Samuel. And I don't think it's being taught here, although it's not counter to that uh, right. theological idea. Yeah. Well, what about um, how do you interpret uh, kill Vavo, a man after his heart or after God's own heart? Or uh, that's been interpreted numerous ways. And then, and I've even have a video here on the dojo where we look at that phrase. Um, but I'd like to hear how, what do you do? How do you read that? Is that the best translation? Is there a better way that you render it? Or is it talking about David's heart, God's heart? Yeah. In in the commentary, I went with the understanding of it meaning God's choice. Um, so a man after God's own heart, he, it, it's only mentioned in 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is when Saul has disobeyed and waited for the sacrifice. And, and Samuel says, um, your kingdom is not going to endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So I, I went with the, it's a very popular interpretation since I think uh, McCarter's commentary, uh, that it means your choice. So if you look at, say, Psalm 24, it says, may he give you the desire of your heart. It's like, it's, it says after your heart. Mm. It's kind of like what you want. Or um, uh, do all that you have in your heart, uh, Jonathan says to his armor bearer. Or his armor bearer says to Jonathan when Jonathan wants to go attack the Philistines, right? In other words, do what you want. Do your choice. There's a Babylonian, the Babylonian Chronicle talks about Nebuchadnezzar installing a king after his own heart on the throne, which is basically a king that he chose. So mm -hmm. there is an aspect that it means choice in some ways. But since writing the commentary, I've become convinced that there's more to it than that. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's some ambiguity. I think it is partly about choice, but Ben Johnson writes a great article, what I recommend uh, writing. He was telling me about it at SBL, and I hadn't actually read it when I wrote that commentary, sadly. But, uh, about the theme of the heart in Samuel. And I think he makes a pretty compelling case 
that there is more to it going on than it just being God's choice. Mm -hmm. So um, some of those verses that talk about the heart um, seem, there, there seems to be something about the heart, not just choice going on. And uh, there's something about David's heart that might be different than Saul's. So I'll just go through a few examples. I, I still think the choice one is, is a, a uh, good rendering, but I think a lot of it comes from this view that how can he be a man after God's own heart when he does terrible things? Right. It can't mean that. And so we gravitate to this other interpretation. But the heart in Samuel is, um, and, and the, its use in other narratives even, it seems to be more than just choice. Uh, a heart being like another heart. So the inference there is that uh, a man after God's own heart is the idea that David's heart would be like God's heart. Uh, so there, there is this comparison of hearts we find even in Kings where Solomon uh, turns his heart after other gods and his heart was not devoted to the Lord his God. This is in 1 Kings 11.4. And it says his heart's not devoted to God as the heart of David his father had been. Mm -hmm. So it specifically references the heart of David saying it was devoted to Yahweh. And that's in the Deuteronomistic history if we're going to hold that or the sequel to the book of Samuel, which is first Kings. So that's really interesting. I thought that was um, important. And then you have that, that reference that I mentioned with Samuel, uh, Jonathan's armor bearer saying, go do all this in your heart. The heart comes up over and uh, over and over in Samuel. Um, and in Jeremiah, you have God saying, he's going to give you shepherds um, after my own heart. Some say that just means that he chooses, but it seems to me in that context, it's about those who are going to do good or or, or do things Yahweh's way rather than just so that I choose. So I think that there might be some ambiguity in there. And David's heart in Kings is kind of emphasized where you have um, he, he's supposed to be better than Saul, you know, the neighbor who's better than you. There is a comparison being made with him, some kind of qualities that um, make him a little different than than Saul in some ways. And the heart in Samuel, it comes out when when Saul is first anointed. I don't know if you remember, it says God gave him a new heart. You yeah. know, he's anointed by Saul. So the issue of the heart and the leader is is already right there. That's something that's going on there. Yeah. Um, and then the narrator gives says that God gives him a new heart. When Eliab uh, is about to be chosen by Samuel as king, you know that famous story. Oh, this must be the king of Israel. God says, no, no, I look at the heart. And then he chooses David. Right. It seems to be there's something about David's heart that is also in the mix on what that might mean there. Because mm. it's explicitly said there. And, of course, that uh, he's said to be better than him. Um, so I think I think there's something there. But it doesn't, we don't have to say that a man after God's own heart is a, is a murderer and a rapist or something like that that goes too yeah. far. But with my view that David is held up as exemplary sometimes, but then held up as a really bad example other times, uh, the after God's own heart, if it does have something to do with David's heart, as 1 Kings 11 suggests, and, and when he's anointed and so God says he looked at his heart, um, there's aspects of David that may be part of that. I don't know. What do you think? I, I In the past, I think when I reflect... I liked the one about it being God's choice because it it solved the problem for me of how could he be a man after God's own right. heart when he did yeah, yeah, yeah. things. I yeah. think that was my main reason. Like, yes, that got to be the reason. And I ran with that. But when you look at the theme of the heart, I think there's some compelling reasons that it could be 
maybe both and or it's yeah. a little more complex than that. I, I like that. I like the way you put it, because I do like I I take the position that primarily it, the phrase is should not be translated a man after God's own heart. I don't know where elsewhere is ever translated as after. And in the Septuagint, I think it's kata. Uh, which is usually something like according to, or and, and so I've, I, I, the according to God's heart, God's inner self is to me what makes the most sense grammatically. But then with the theme that God is doesn't look on the outward appearance, He looks on the inner self, you know, the lave, the heart. So there is something that God is seeing. What I, where I don't, what I'm not persuaded by is sort of the popular view well david had a heart like god's like that that jump that people make based on the english after god's own heart that's where i'm like i can't go there but i can all the the points that you're bringing up and making i think those are right there there was something about david's inner self his heart that was different than saul's and that was different than what his outer appearance would have portrayed and and that that's what God's keying in on, but ultimately it is God choosing a man according mm-hmm. to God's. I think that own is referring to God, God's own inner being, and that there's something in there that he uh, he sees it in David that he doesn't see in Saul. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just the, I've just I've seen a Bible study, a popular level Bible study. The whole thing was about. Uh, it just kept saying, and David had a heart like God's, and David had a heart like God's. And I'm like, ah, he, not when you read the text. There's something different for sure. Doug Stewart said, I think when I was back when Doug was my professor in seminary, and, and we were talking about this passage in Hebrew, and he said, because he worked on the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation, and he said that the, it's idiomatic and should be translated as a man loyal to God that it was talking about David's loyalty. And that's how, that's sort of how he incorporated all of what you just brought up, all of those other things. And I thought that was, I mean, the, the reference in Kings is really interesting that Solomon's heart is not devoted to God, like the heart of David was. So that's where it clearly says the heart of David, because the, yeah, after his heart could just mean God. So just God's choice. It might not be referencing David's heart, but in that one, it's it clearly does. So it's yeah. really interesting. And it's talking about being kind of a devoted. So maybe the loyalty, maybe that's kind of what it is. I mean, and you do have with David where he doesn't ever go after other gods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's that was Stuart's kind of, biggest point. Stuart's biggest point was for all the later Kings, right? Yeah. The later Kings are always not getting rid of the high places. They're following the bales. They're doing all this rather than, like David being loyal to Yahweh. Yeah, so in that sense, uh, he he was devoted to Yahweh as his God, but it does not mean everything in his heart was like God, for sure. We right. see the evil in his heart. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask, um, there's, I wanted to, two more questions and then, and then we can wrap it up. That I want to ask you about, so Samuel, if you're reading Samuel and Kings and then you're reading Chronicles, you can't help but notice that there are differences uh, a number of different ones, but the a glaring one is who incited David to take a census uh, at the end and, and God's judgment in response. One, one says, you know, David did it. One says that Satan uh, did it. Like, how do you? One says that? God, God did it. One says, one says God. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. One says that God moved and one says that Satan moved. Him. I've read, and there's been a lot of apologetic attempts at, you know, cause critics and, and, 
people will just say, well, here's a clear contradiction. Like it's clear. Mm-hmm. You can't, yeah. you can't get more opposite than God and Satan. So what's going on there? Is this Satan with a capital S Satan? Is this God acting as a, an adversary? You know, how do you yeah, handle yeah. this with your students? Well, my, my very first article I ever published is in Biblica and it's on this topic. So, Oh, wonderful. I want to read it. I wrote it as an undergrad, actually, but uh, shockingly got it published. Yeah, it must uh, have been good. I didn't have a PhD at the time. But anyway, I still kind of hold to that argument. And well, what it is, is uh, so uh, the wrath of God um, incites David in Second Samuel 24, where in First Chronicles 21, 1, uh, it says, Satan stands up against David and incites him. So there is the only time in the Hebrew Bible where you have satan as a name without the definite article attached mm-hmm. so in job or in zechariah you have hasatan where it's the adversary um, in hebrew you don't have the article attached to names like you can in greek or some other languages but not in hebrew if it's a proper name it doesn't have the article on it mm-hmm. uh, that is the so uh, actually the the translations of job and zechariah should say something like the adversary not or you could say the Satan if you want to combine it, but it shouldn't be seen as them understanding the proper name. But First Chronicles twenty-one one is a uh, could be the proper name Satan because there's no article attached. Mm-hmm. There's debate over this. Sarah Yaffet in her uh, uh, well in her dissertation, her, the ideology of the Book of Chronicles and its place in biblical thought, is uh, argues that the article is uh, a stage later towards it becoming a person and so she thinks this is just a common noun adversary gary knoppers in his uh, anchor bible also holds to that interpretation i think it is the name satan Mm -hmm. if it was a common noun adversary at that point it would just be some anonymous uh, adversary to israel who uh, incites david and then he sins and but that adversary is never dealt with there's no resolution to it it would be kind of an anomaly in the book um, so I, I think it is Satan. But um, what about this problem of God or Satan doing it? In in my article, I, I argue that this is kind of in the post-exilic period, there was more and more acknowledgement or awareness of kind of divine intermediaries, you might call them. Um, a, a, angelology, demonology uh, blossomed in the Persian period into the Hellenistic period. And then into the New Testament, you have full blown angelology, demonology. Um, whereas most of the Old Testament, a lot of the angels are kind of personifications of God or theophanies, I should say. Um, and uh, where, when in the later literature, it becomes more and more clear that there's angels who are not God, that they, they do the work of God, right? Um, even in the book of Chronicles, um, with the uh, invasion of Sennacherib, if you compare that with the book of Kings, in the book of Kings, it says, the angel of the Lord went out and smote the Assyrians. In the book of Chronicles, it says, and God sent an angel who smote the Assyrians. It seems to show there's a little bit of a development in the awareness of God using intermediaries. And so in First Chronicles 21, when Satan appears, I argue it's a very similar, similar thing. Um, and if you... If it's problematic for you to think that God used Satan, well, you look at the book of Job, and it's it's interesting that you have it's the Satan or the Hasatan throughout the whole thing. They have these kind this kind of bet going on with Job. But later in the book, Satan is never mentioned again. There's never a resolution. He never blames the Satan for something. And he seems to take full responsibility for what happened. Job says, you know, you did this to me, God. And God seems like, yeah, got a problem with that? 
let me tell you about creation and Leviathan and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, there's there, there's no way that God is blaming Satan for that. He's happy to take the fall, not the fall, but the responsibility for it. And so similarly, I think in First Chronicles 21, uh, he's he's working um, through this intermediary, but um, that we shouldn't read kind of all of our kind of arch enemy of God uh, theology into that still. I don't think that the narrator in Chronicles was suggesting that but there is a kind of a move toward kind of an angel angel expansion in that chapter if you look at the angel that shows up um in uh so in that story david sins with the census then uh there's there's gonna an angel is coming to jerusalem to uh, there's gonna be a plague in in uh in chronicles this angel is flying where he's not flying in samuel it seems to show there's kind of angelological development going on there in in uh, Chronicles, also the angel commands Gad as to what David should do. There's this intermediary stage between God and people where the angel is communicating the word. That's only in Chronicles in the Samuel text. It's not. Seems to me that they had uh, the chronicler had a more developed theology of intermediaries that God was using, and that's what we see in the Satan there and the, and the development of the angel mm-hmm. and the relaying of the word of God through the angel in that passage. Um, and uh, it's a it's a Persian post-exilic work separated from um, the earlier works of Samuel by quite some time, and there's there's uh, a lot of development. So that's that's how I understand the use of of the Satan there. Some say it's a trying to distance God from causing um, his servant to to sin. I don't see that at all. I think many times you have God's perfectly happy uh, uh, working uh, to test people or or see what what their faith is like, right? Um, he tests Abraham. And then uh, later in the story with uh, the death of Ahab at Ramoth Gilead, uh, there's this scene of the of the divine council. It's in First uh, Kings 22, but it's also in, in Chronicles. And uh, the spirit says, hey, I'll go deceive Ahab. I'll tell him to go into battle and then he'll die. And God's like, I like that plan. We'll go with your plan. So like God has no problem, even in the Chronicles, because that happens in Chronicles too. He's not trying to, the narrator's not trying to distance God from some kind of uh, malevolent actions or causing someone to be judged. So I don't I don't think that has merit for that interpretation. Hmm. Anyway, that's my view of it. Okay. And I'll post a link to that because, again, all of these things we're just mentioning, we're just bringing up. And, uh, and my hope is that this is whetting people's appetite to go back in and do some more digging around these books. And hopefully, folks, the Story of God series that Paul has written, his commentary on this came out 2018, I think. And yeah. this is this is not at a technical level where you have to know Greek or Hebrew in order to glean from it. If you're a preacher, teacher, small group leader, Sunday school, uh, this commentary series is easily readable for you, but it also does interact with some scholarship and some of these types of discussions. So I definitely want to recommend that. Let's end with, uh, you You talked about, you mentioned to me when we were talking about topics to discuss, uh, David's fleeing, of Abs- uh, fleeing from Absalom and that that was of interest to you, particularly having to do with Jesus. And I said, that'd be great because here on Disciple Dojo, uh, I'm currently teaching through the Psalms. We just posted earlier this week, Psalm 7, going through, just looking at the Hebrew text, looking at about, you know, seven, eight, nine different translations, the Septuagint, and just walking people through the Psalms. And those early Psalms, especially three, four, and five, they are seemingly about that incident when David was fleeing and what he was 
possibly feeling if it is David that wrote them or if they were just written to kind of hearken back to that episode. What about it interests you and, and what should viewers know about that concept in Samuel? Until I wrote the commentary and did more research, I had I, I actually was completely ignorant of this, but there's so many parallels with the story of of David's fleeing Absalom and his departure from Jerusalem and the, the passion story of Christ in the New mm -hmm. Testament, which is fascinating to me. And uh, I was talking, uh, after I had just published the commentary, I was at SBL sharing a cab with this uh, New Testament professor, and he started telling me that he was writing on that. And I'm like, hey, uh, I wrote this, so I gave him a copy of my book, because um, and I'd like, love to see what he wrote. I should look into that, see if it's published yet. But uh, there's all these parallels. So when David's fleeing, he goes up on the Mount of Olives. He's troubled in spirit, just like Jesus does. And uh, he's he's uh, people are weeping hmm. as he leaves, just like people are weeping for Jesus, even though public supports against them, because like uh, they actually all went with Absalom. And so, of course, people had called for Jesus' crucifixion. There's these interesting... Um, David hopes for his deliverance, but he submits himself to God's will, even if it means death. This is in 2 Samuel 15, 25 and 26. Very similar to Jesus, you know, um, not your will, but might be done. He submits, even though he asks for deliverance. And so there's a real, a real parallel there. David's followers at that point express undying loyalty and faithfulness to him. At the same spot that in the New Testament, in Matthew 26, Jesus' followers expressed their fidelity at the exact same spot. It's really interesting. Unlike David's followers, Jesus' disciples kind of fail in their fidelity. You know, they fall asleep in prayer and eventually abandon him. Right. Um, but David here is also um, cursed. And he, he uh, when he, you could say maybe when he was abused, he does not return abuse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he, uh, trust himself to God. And so people are cursing him on the way out and he's, he's stopping other people from, from hurting them. So just like Peter comes out and cuts off a guy's um, ear in the garden. So he stops his, um, um, one of the brothers of Zeruiah to go and take off this guy's head. So it's, there's a, a parallel there, but an interesting parallel is also with, um, oh yeah. So Shimia comes out and says that God is, um, this is because of the bad things David done and Yahweh was behind his assault. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter for taking up the sword and defense. It's, it's, there's a lot of interesting parallels, but Ahithophel, Ahithophel is this, uh, was, um, David's faithful counselor in Jerusalem. And, uh, he betrays David mm. and, uh, uh, he finds out that he had betrayed him when he's on the Mount of Olives. Just like that's how he, when he finds out that Judas has betrayed him, right? Like, well, mm -hmm. he knew beforehand, but he betrays him with a kiss there. And uh, many of the locations that are mentioned in David's flight from Jerusalem and the Passion narrative are all the same. I'm probably going to forget some off the top of my head here. But David and Jesus both ascend the Mount of Olives, and there they learn of the betrayal. And, uh, and Ahithophel and Judas also both betray Jesus, and then they go hang themselves. It's, it's very similar. And they hang themselves before the fruition of their betrayal even comes through. So they betray, and then they go and hang themselves. Uh, uh, interesting similarity there. And they both betray him in Jerusalem. So Ahithophel is at the king's palace with the new king. Judas is at the temple. That's where the betrayals kind of take place. And they uh, they they um, kill themselves after they betray him, before the fruits of their uh, betrayal comes forth. So there's a, it's interesting reading it. If you read that part, and then go read the the passion story in Matthew. It's just the, the connections between the two, which uh, 
are are very fascinating to me. And I, I'm interested to see what this New Testament scholar, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I know where he teaches, so I should look him up um, and see what he's written about that because he said he was writing a book on it. So I just touched on it a bit in the commentary. But it really, you know, David as uh, the Messiah, not that he was the Messiah, but as a messianic kind of forerunner and the son of David, course jesus is a, mm. it's a messianic title to see the uh, the differences and similarities between that story are, are fascinating to me yeah so it's something that just uh i didn't even know about before before i read the book i mean that's, the book. that's fascinating to me and i back way back in seminary um i talked with jace clark a little bit about this because we both had a one of our same professors um Gordon Hugenberger was really formative in shaping how we see typology and uh, looking for these patterns throughout scripture and in particular between Jesus and David in so many ways. And, and so you mentioning that, and then me reading through the Psalms, it, that's fascinating to me. I think there's a lot there and I think it helps us understand the dynamic of some of the Psalms that were written and, by giving us sort of some backstory. And it also helps us understand how the New Testament authors, when they quote from those Psalms, which are based on the event that you're talking about, that it, it it's all kind of coming from the same milieu that they're pulling from. That's the kind of deep reading that really makes biblical studies come alive. When you, when you start seeing those hyperlinks, between Old and New Testament, and and even between Old Testament and Old Testament, mm -hmm. it, you just you notice things that you never thought, and it's exciting. And not every trail is a, a gold mine, you know. Some are a dead end, but just having that wherewithal to read the text, noting those similarities, it really makes the text come alive. Yeah, um, yeah, and so, it enriches our reading of the New Testament. The more we get into the Old, and then you read the New, and it's like. It's just yeah. so much deeper and more meaning. Yeah. Oh, it, the the in a course I teach a course. Uh, I used to teach a course from Samaritan's Purse for Gordon Conwell, and we called it the Bible in HD. And the theme of the course was reading the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament is like watching the World Series on a black and white TV or the World mm -hmm. Cup or whatever sporting event Super Bowl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see the game, you know the score, you you can follow along, but reading the New Testament with a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament is like watching that same game on an HD plasma screen, like 4K, you see yeah. things you know. It's not, it's almost like watching an entirely different game, even though it's the same game. You just have such more vivid appreciation for it. And things like what you just pointed out are a great example of how knowing the Old Testament informs our New Testament study. Yeah. So, and some, yeah. some people make the, the example of like, say, you could watch... Um, few seasons of some show that's currently running but you hadn't seen the original three seasons mm -hmm. but you can still enjoy it get what's going on it's a good show but then you go back and watch the earlier one and then add so much like there's also so there's there's about background knowledge but also i like the hd example too that you just see things you didn't see before and that yeah there's, there's just so much importance to uh read the scriptures yeah, yeah. For sure. How can viewers, if they want to, we'll link to your page because you have a page with uh, a lot of your work where they can find that. Yeah. What's, the, what's the best way somebody watching this and they want to reach out to you, either talk to you about maybe coming to speak at their church or they have a question or they're looking for some resource guidance or what, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So my uh, 
work email address, which you're welcome to share. It's just P as in Paul and Evans, P Evans at McMaster.ca. That's probably the easiest way to connect with me. Uh, I do put all my articles that I'm allowed to up on academia.edu. Ed, okay. When I get an article published, there's usually a time frame you can't, and then I put it up once it's right. available. And so you can get a lot of my articles there. But my latest book I uh, I just uh, published last year, um, it's called Snack Rib in the War of 1812. And it compares the, the War of 1812 between Canada and the United States, where both sides say they won. And then I look at Hezekiah and Snacker back in 701 BC, and I use it as an analogy to say why both sides could have thought they won. And it's it's a it's a fun book. It's it's not the cheapest book, but you could maybe you could grab it off of a a, a library, or if you want to buy it. Uh, I'd love to talk about that sometime yeah. too, but that, that was a fun one for me to write because my first book was also on Sennacherib and, and Hezekiah. So it's been a topic I've really been interested in a lot of st historical questions. So, okay. It's my latest one in print. Okay. Got gotcha. you. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, I was just on uh, on script biblical world last week talking about that. So oh, cool. it's a lot of fun to talk about, but right now I'm writing a uh, two volume commentary on Chronicles okay. and it's for the uh, new international commentary, the old Testament series with Erdman's. Yeah. So I'm uh, almost done uh, one of the volumes. I actually wrote Second Chronicles first, so I'm writing Second Chronicles now. I have seven chapters left to finish, okay. and then I'm going to write First Chronicles. The yeah. idea being then, because First Chronicles will have the whole introduction to the whole book, so then I'll have worked through all the material. So mm -hmm. they thought that was a good idea to do that that way. The commentary in the Nicot series is that was there one already, or are you the first one writing? Chronicles. Yeah, they've never had a Chronicles commentary in that series. So That's it's not a replacement thought. volume. They're just finally getting to it, which is which is great. I'm excited about the project. So yeah, well, they're doing that. I know Charlie Trim is is helping with their Exodus. Uh, which they're finally getting out. So I that's that is probably across the board my like overall most used commentary set is Nicot, and yeah. and it's just really cool that I actually know some people that are contributing to it because it is such a phenomenal overall. Oh, yeah. I, I've always loved set. that series, so I'm I'm totally excited to be contributing to it. It's amazing. So yeah. I'm really glad to do it. Well, we will I'm absolutely have you back on. Going? We will absolutely have you back on when that comes out for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'd love uh, to talk about Chronicles. Talk about it. But I'll, I'll check out, I'll link to the Sennacherib uh, 1812, but that sounds really interesting. Uh, I definitely want to read that uh, for myself. But I'm, I'm also writing a biography of David. Uh, okay. Which is going to be IVP in this new series of uh, biographies, but it won't be out for a while because okay. I got to finish this volume first. And, uh, but... I'm excited about doing that too. It should be a fun project. So that's pretty much what I'm working on for the next few years. Chronicles and David. Of the yeah. making of books, there is no end. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I, man, that's awesome. That's exciting stuff. Please stay in touch here in the dojo. Um, we, the whole reason for this ministry is to get people who are hungry for deeper biblical knowledge more informed as to what's out there, pointing them towards resources like your commentary and um, and your upcoming work. I mean, that's just, that's what we do here. That's what I started this ministry in hopes of being able to do. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, and tell, tell your other friends and colleagues out there, hey, you want to talk about some of the stuff you're working on? Talk to this JM Absolutely. guy surrounded by action figures in his uh, studio. Yeah, I love your action figures. They're uh, awesome. <laughs> Man, well you... I, was, I was almost going to sit in front of my uh, kid's toy shelf. They have, they're huge Lego fans and I have all my Star Wars toys from when I was a kid. Um, oh, 
but it wasn't Kendrick. a good place to sit my computer but i was gonna uh, i saw yours and like wow i should show off my toys next time <laughs> that, that's my star wars section right there is that it's more i'm more mandalorian fan than star wars yeah, I, I, I see love baby wars. yoda or the child or oh yeah oh i'm a huge huge baby yoda fan uh it's so funny how many comments i get i'll probably get comments on this video it's always somebody going why are you surrounded by idols why are you sur like it just My cracks idol. me up that people don't know what toys are. I'm like, man, your childhood must have been so unimaginative. Uh, oh, well, I never heard that. Thank you so much for coming on, and it's hey, great to connect. Yeah, absolutely. We'll stay in touch. Uh, keep me posted on what's happening, and folks, check out Paul's work. I'm going to put links. So go in the description below. Check those out. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to this channel. We're we're getting we're I'm on the verge of seeing 20,000 subscribers um, in the near future. And when we do that, we're going to be giving away a ton of resources here. Um, a lot of the Bibles that I've reviewed here on the channel and, and just you want to be a part of it. So the only way you can do that is to be a subscriber and bonus points. If you click the notification icon, that really helps us with the YouTube algorithm. So thanks for taking the time. Paul, have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And uh, folks, thanks for watching. We'll see you back here next time at Disciple Dojo. And as always, keep training.